Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Ben Storo, reporter with E&E News, about the state of the U.S. offshore wind industry. As you may have heard, there have been a number of project cancellations and delays announced in recent weeks as the industry encounters a variety of unexpected challenges. I'll ask Ben to help us understand the source of those challenges, the tools policymakers have to address them, and his longer-term outlook for the future of U.S. offshore wind. We'll also get into the weeds on things like state contracting, the specialized ships that install offshore wind turbines, and the details on recent federal energy tax credits. Stay with us. Ben Storo from E&E News. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, it's a thrill to have you on the show because I get to ask you questions this time <laughs> instead of you asking me questions. Which so I love you. to do. I prefer asking you questions, but but I'm happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're happy to have you. And um, yeah, I look forward to having the shoe on the other foot for the day. So let's get started, Ben, with the same question that we ask all of our guests to start off. So um, how did you get interested in environmental topics? Were you interested in this stuff as a kid or did you kind of come to it later in life? You know, I was interested in it as a kid. My dad um, uh, is worked in the conservation movement, and so that always sort of had a interest to me. But in terms of reporting about it, it sort of happened by accident. I moved to Wyoming um, in 2012, I guess it was, and um, I'd moved there as a feature writer, and. Um, it didn't take me long to realize that the biggest stories in Wyoming are energy related. And so when the energy reporter left after a couple months of my being out there, I was like, Hey, I'd like to do that job. And, um, you know, a lot of writing about coal and oil and natural gas as well as wind. And, uh, you know, a decade later, I'm still doing it. Excellent. Well, we're, we're lucky you're still doing it because, um, your reporting is great. And, um, and we're, or I'm always really appreciative of it. Um, and that last energy source you mentioned, wind, that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, and our listeners probably know that you know there's been a lot of news lately about offshore wind in the U.S. Um, in the last several weeks and months. Um, but before we talk about the news and sort of the latest and maybe not greatest sets of developments, can you start us off by just articulating some of the goals that the Biden administration has stated and and also that some states have stated with regard to deploying offshore wind in the U.S.? Yeah, for sure. I think a good place to start is with the states because they're really the drivers here and have been the drivers um, for quite some time um, because really sort of the modern story of offshore wind, by which I mean everything that came after Cape Wind, the failed project off of Cape Cod. It all started in Massachusetts around 2016 when Massachusetts decided that it wanted uh, to buy a lot of offshore wind. And the state went out, passed a law saying its utilities were going to have to buy some wind. And then when the first contract got done for what is now Vineyard Wind, the price came in and it was much, much lower than everybody was expecting. And it sort of set off this boom up and down the East Coast where all these states sort of piling in trying to get offshore wind. Um, And their reasons were several. Um, 
you know, the climate reason is for the Northeast, this is the Northeast's best renewable resource. You know, California has solar, the Midwest has onshore wind, but in the Northeast, the, the best renewable resource is offshore wind. So that's sort of thing one. Um, when the prices came in it, much lower than expected, um, it all of a sudden started looking like a better financial deal um, for everybody. And so that was, of course, attractive. And then the third thing that's that's really important here is um, the jobs and the job potential for job creation. Um, there's This is a part of the country where energy extract, like the extraction part of the energy industry has never really happened. It's usually uh, importing energy from other parts of the country. And so this ability to sort of have a, domestic energy industry, if you will, was really appealing to a lot of these states. And so they all pile in, they have a lot of goals, and um, then the Biden administration comes around. And for the Biden administration, this is almost like the perfect marriage of Bidenomics, you know, greening the economy while creating blue collar uh, family supporting jobs. And so the administration very early on, came out with a goal that they were going to do 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by the end of the decade. And 30 gigawatts is a lot of power. It's about 10 million homes um, is what uh, sort of the the factoid there. The other interesting fact about, uh, or projection, I guess I should say, about the 30 gigawatt target is, is that it would lead to cumulative emission reductions of 78 million tons um, by the end of the decade. The way I always try to put that in perspective is if you took the annual emissions of every power plant in New England, New York, New Jersey, uh, and added that up, it's around 78 million tons per year. So um, it it has the potential um, to, to cut quite a bit of carbon. Yeah. Yeah. And another piece of context for the size and scale, I often think about gigawatts in terms of like big nuclear reactors. So like a big nuke is about one gigawatt. Um, so having 30 gigawatts offshore is, is a pretty big deal. Capacity factors are different, of course. Um, but Very different. Those weeds. So Ben, I feel like it was a year ago or maybe you know 16 months ago or something like that where I was hearing lots of good news stories about offshore wind uh, coming from the Northeast. And maybe this is part of the sort of low production costs that you're talking about. But there were also you know successful lease sales and project announcements. There were lots of companies, including you know international oil companies like Total and Equinor announcing big projects in the Northeast. So can you talk about some of those good news stories that cropped up a little while back? And, and then we're going to sort of turn to the more recent bad news after that. Yeah, right. Well, and I've sort of been thinking about this story in chapters, right? Like in the first... Um, chapter it was sort of the euphoria stage where everything was possible and um you know it looked like the prices were going down it looked like this massive renewable resource and just good news like the state targets kept getting higher and higher you're referencing in early 2022 um the uh, the bureau of of ocean energy management, which is a division of the interior department had a lease sale where they brought in $4 billion. Um, and that sort of was like, Oh, eye opening to everybody. Um, at the time, uh, BP shell, um, Equinor, they were all really making offshore wind sort of a centerpiece of their 
um, energy transition plans. Um, the oil companies were particularly sort of drawn to this industry because they felt like they had a particular expertise offshore um, and that they were that was something that they were good at and they knew how to do. Um, and so for you know a minute there, it seemed like um, there wasn't anything that offshore wind couldn't do. Yeah, and now and now we turn the page <laughs> to the to the next chapter. So so what's the next chapter? The next chapter, you know, started to hit really. I mean, it was the one-two punch of COVID um, and and the war in Ukraine. And so you have COVID, which sparks uh, the inflation that we have seen economy wide. And for offshore wind, you know, that was damaging for things like steel prices and. Uh, copper prices, basically all the things that go into, uh, you know, one of these turbines. Um, but the war in Ukraine, it is, you know, it is um, really hard uh, to overstate how big of an impact that has had. You know, probably a lot of the listeners um, will be familiar uh, with early on in the war, the Ukrainians, uh, they made a stand in the port city of uh, Mariupol. And, and some steel mills there. And they held out for a long time, and uh, eventually the Russians won that battle. And those steel mills, um, and Ukraine more generally, um, they produce about 50% of Europe's plate steel. And plate steel is what you roll into a, a tower for an offshore wind farm. And so the supply chain and the prices got really snarled by that. And... Um, so, so that had a huge impact, uh, on this industry. The, the thing, the other part, the other thing that was sort of happening and the other thing that sort of the struggle for offshore wind here is it's almost a victim of, of its own success in some ways. It's growing very, very rapidly, um, both in terms of, um, the number of countries that are looking to, to build offshore wind projects, but also, in the size of these turbines themselves. Um, you know, with folks will remember like um, in Cape Winds Day, which was early 2000s, those were like three uh, megawatt turbines that they wanted to use. The ones that are being put up off of Martha's Vineyard today um, for Vineyard Wind, those are 12, 13 megawatt turbines. And the industry has kept getting even bigger. There's talking about 15 megawatts and maybe even pushing even higher than that. And the problem with that is you need boats that are big enough to carry these things and put them up. And there's just simply not enough of those to go around. And so all of those sort of factors are coming to a head and making the prices of these projects more expensive than what people previously thought. Yeah. And I want to ask you in a second, about some of the specific announcements that we've heard recently about projects getting delayed or, or shelved. Um, but one quick follow-up on the boats, um, you know, it makes me think about the Jones Act, which um, I don't know all the details of, but my sort of thumbnail recollection is that for, you know, for cargo that is carried from an American port to another American port, the boat has to be American flagged. Is that correct? And is that part of the story here with the uh, uh, um, lack of availability of vessels? That is part of the story. Um, yeah, well, let me put it this way. It is and it isn't. The shortage of, of vessels is an issue globally. 
um, but it is one that the Jones Act makes even more difficult. Um, so basically, you're you're right. You can't have a foreign flagged uh, ship going from U.S. port to U.S. port. And so the wind developers' way around that is you'll get these great big ships um, for installing um, uh, foundations and towers um, and, and the turbines themselves. And they, they basically, they go offshore and they stay there for uh, the duration of the installation and they are fed by a series of barges um, I guess I should back up. So first you get these transport vessels that are, all of this stuff at this point pretty much is made overseas. So the towers, all of that, they come in, they go to the port, they get partially assembled in the port, they get put on a barge that goes out um, to, um, to, the, to the project site. And there you'll have your your the, your foundation ship or your uh, turbine installation vessel, which you know they have huge cranes. Um, they will then install the turbine there. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And so Ben, is the issue that there aren't enough sort of of these large installation ships kind of waiting offshore to do the work, or is it a lack of capacity of ships kind of coming from the coast to supply those installation vessels so the problem really is that for an offshore wind installation vessel you need basically three things you need deck space you need a crane that is um, strong enough to lift one of these components i mean we're talking about you know something that that um it, you know the that weighs as much as three fully loaded Boeing 747s. So it has to be a really strong crane. And then the third thing is um, for the wind turbine installation vessels specifically, they have legs. They actually put down their legs onto the ocean floor to stabilize themselves, and they have to be um, long enough to reach uh, the ocean floor. So back in 2020, uh, the Government Accountability Office did a a study of how many of these vessels exist, and they identified 50 in the world. Um, That number is probably too high because um, the turbines have since grown, um, and so there just literally are not enough of these boats. And at the same time, more and more countries are dialing up more and more projects. So one of the biggest things, and we'll talk about it in a little in a little bit here about some of the projects that got um, canceled in New Jersey. But one of the biggest factors in that decision was that the installation vessels weren't going to be available for a couple of years. That's so interesting. And so it's not even so it's cost clearly, but it's also just these ships are tied up right they're 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 booked out uh through through the relevant periods they're booked out yeah and to to make one final the one final sort of interesting thing on this is dominion energy uh the utility based in virginia um they went out and decided okay they have the biggest planned offshore wind project in the country it's um 2600 megawatts um they went out and decided okay we're going to build one of these things and it is under construction in South Texas today, um, and it's called the Charybdis for any uh, 
any readers of the Greek classics might get that reference. Um, but um, the Tribdis, in addition to, to working on uh, Dominion's project, it was signed up to work on some projects off of uh, southern New England starting next year. And its construction has sort of fallen behind. And that's sort of been a, um, a big question mark for those projects that uh, had planned on using it. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, so there are all these headwinds, so to speak, facing these projects. Um, what are some of the outcomes we've seen recently? You mentioned a couple of projects in New Jersey uh, being announced as canceled. How big of a deal is that? So the first thing we saw um, was it started in Massachusetts again, um, this time for ill for the wind developers, uh, with the uh, companies there basically saying, hey, we have signed contracts that aren't going to pay us enough to cover our costs. And so uh, we need to renegotiate these deals. And um, the state said, nope. We're not going to do that. We don't want to set a bad precedent where develop where we you know have a competitive process to issue these contracts, um, and then you come back to us and say no, they don't work. So they said no, um, and sort of a similar thing has happened in Connecticut, um, in Rhode Island. There was a, only one bid got submitted for for a, a follow up um, project. Uh, the Rhode Island utility that had sort of the um, in the way it works in Rhode Island is the utility gets to pick and the utility said no this is too expensive we're not going to do it um, in New York they asked we saw the developers make a similar request as, as the ones in Massachusetts and the state said no and the thing that sort of unites all of these projects up until this point is all the developers said okay that's not good uh, we're going to, in like the case of Massachusetts, they're like, okay, we're going to cancel our contracts. In the case of New York, it's just happened. So it's sort of a question mark of how these things will land. But they all, the, the key point is they all said that they were going to keep moving forward. Um, and they were just going to try to rebid and get a new contract. So fast forward to, to last week, New Jersey comes along and Orsted says, you know what, we aren't, just going to cancel our contract for Ocean Wind 1 and Ocean Wind 2. We're just going to cancel the project entirely. Um, and that was a really massive moment um, for the industry here in this country and a, and a really big moment for Orsted, which is under a lot of financial duress at this moment in time um, because it just sort of signaled that going back to that euphoria stage, you know, some of those projects are not going to happen or they're not going to happen by 2030 maybe is the better way to put it. Right. Yeah, I want to come back and ask you about your sort of long-term view uh, about how temporary or not these these challenges are. Um, but first, I'm curious what um, sort of options state and federal policymakers might have at their disposal to speed things up. Um, obviously, they have announcements that they're trying to hit. They have targets they're trying to hit. What are some of the options at their disposal and how viable do you think they might be? So for the states, it's really about contracting and how quickly they can get their contracts, um, new contracts in place. Massachusetts is expected to go out um, uh, and announce new contracts early next year. In New York's case, um, they what they did is, um, so the State Public Service Commission said, no, we don't want to 
amend your existing contracts. Um, then what happened with the uh, NYSERDA, the New York, I'm always going to get NYSERDA's acronym <laughs> wrong, New York State Energy Development Authority. Uh, NYSERDA came out and said, okay, we're going to do an expedited procurement for new contracts, uh, basically. And it's, you know, it's they have to be careful. I think they have to open it up to everybody. But I think the idea is to get the four projects in New York that had wanted higher prices uh, to give them an opportunity to get new contracts. Um, and the reason why that was really important in New York's case is, um, you know, New York, first of all, these projects are almost fully permitted. So they're ready to start building. Um, Equinor and BP have three projects. They were supposed to start building um, a, a staging port in Brooklyn imminently. Like in the next couple of months, that port is really sort of foundational to everything else that's supposed to come in New York State from this point forward. So if it's not there for subsequent projects, that's that's problematic. Um, and so New York is trying to move very quickly to um, get their their pre-existing projects um, new deals, essentially. At the federal level. If you talk to anybody in the industry, they're all going to talk about permitting and the lengthy permitting timelines that these projects face. Um, going back to, to Vineyard Wind, uh, the first project, you know, that project was announced in like 2017 and it didn't get its final permit um, until 2021. Um it still has outstanding legal, uh, there's outstanding legal challenges to that project that hasn't prevented it from moving forward. They have something like four turbines installed already, but you know, the lengthy permitting timeline is, uh, something that you will hear from, from everybody in the industry, because, you know, the way they would put it is it just increases the risk these projects face, you know, um, the, global economy and economic conditions can change pretty drastically in four years, as we've uh, found out, um, as a for instance. The other thing, and really the sort of the biggest thing, um, I think that's probably right in front of the Biden administration right now, is how to administer or the final rules uh, for the tax credits under the Inflation Reduction Act as it relates to offshore wind. That is something that... Um, is probably going to have a big, how those rules and the fine details of those rules are really going to determine, you know, which one of these projects are probably going to move forward and which ones won't. Yeah. And you mentioned the fine details on the Inflation Reduction Act rules, and I, I can't help but ask this question that I was curious about, which is, I, I think a couple of these offshore wind projects um, that are going forward are going to be eligible for a bonus tax credit under the Inflation Reduction Act for projects that are cited in energy communities, um, which you know I think um, the intent was to sort of support fossil energy dependent communities in the energy transition. So it just makes me wonder, like, how can an offshore wind farm be in an energy community? I'm pretty sure they don't mine coal in the Atlantic <laughs> Ocean. <laughs> so this is a really just the energy communities one is really really interesting. So when the IRS came out. Um, with its initial guidance, they said, all right, we're going to define an energy community. This is a 10% tax credit or tax bonus for renewable developers. And 
you know, just as you said, it's not like an onshore wind project that can, or, you know, a solar project that can build, you know, in a community with a lot of coal mining or, or oil and gas development. It's like, where, where do we place an offshore wind project? Like, where do we define its location? And they decided that the most legally defensible place to put it was where the project connects uh, to the grid. The problem with doing it that way, I think the best example for um, for describing it is Avangrid, which is a you know, subsidiary of Iberdrola and based in Connecticut. They had two projects. Um, there are two projects. Um, they both canceled their contracts with Massachusetts and Connecticut. Um, they were both going to connect to the grid on Cape Cod, so they're not energy communities. You know, there's not a lot of energy. Uh, development out on Cape Cod, but that was frustrating to Avangrid because the they had decided that they were going to make two ports: uh, a marshalling port in Salem, Massachusetts, and an operations and maintenance port in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Both of those communities had coal plants, um, and until relatively recently, and that is where. The vast majority of the investment and the jobs um, and all of the sort of work associated with these projects is going to be taking place. And as it stands under the rule, and it's 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 just a proposed rule at this point in time, um, is they would not qualify for that. So that is part one. Part two is, um, and we... <laughs> Some of your listeners might remember that we did a uh, panel uh, on the energy community's uh, bonus. When did we do that? Was that? I I think it was maybe a year ago or something like that. I can't quite remember. <laughs> yeah, it's not. There's some funny definitions in, of what makes an energy community. One of them is that it's a, a brownfield, um, and so. Last week, when Orsted announced that it was going to cancel its projects in New Jersey, but move forward with this one in Rhode Island, uh, or move forward with another project in Rhode Island, you know, part of that is because the the project in Rhode Island connects at an old naval dump, and it's not officially a brownfield yet. Um, but my understanding from talking to people is they feel pretty confident that. It will be officially classified a brownfield. They'll get the extra 10%, and that makes it, um, you know, that, that makes the project viable. Um, t- the last little complication, and then I promise I'll move on. But, like, in New Jersey, it's even more complicated because oh, the two projects, the, the first project was called Ocean Wind One. It had two interconnections. Um, one is at a site of a nuclear plant. The other is at an old coal plant. And so I'd asked the company, I said, well, why wouldn't you qualify um, for energy communities um, in this instance? Um, because you're connecting, one of your interconnections is at a coal plant. And they said, well, the rules don't contemplate um, two interconnections. And so they only, they only contemplate one and we just didn't have any clarity on how this is going to come down wow that's so interesting all right so the energy community's uh tax credit lives on in its complexity Uh, we were not (laughs) able to figure it all out a year ago or whatever no and i bet if you want to talk about it in another year i'm sure we could uh 
do a whole nother panel. <laughs> okay, we'll pencil it in. Um, so Ben, one more question before we go to our top of the stack segment where we ask you to recommend something, um, which is sort of like your long-term view. Um, we've been talking about challenges facing the industry right now, but you know, markets are pretty good at solving market-based challenges. Um, maybe there's going to be a lot more ships coming online. Maybe you know the steel situation will find a way to resolve itself. As you think out towards you know that 2030 or maybe even longer, 2040, 2050 horizon, do you think we're still going to be talking about these types of bottlenecks? Gosh, I, I wish I knew. I think um, I, I, I think the thing that sort of has gotten lost with all the bad news is that projects are moving forward. Um, you know, we're going to get, Vineyard Wind is going to come online probably next year. That's going to be an 800 megawatt project, um, and we have 42 megawatts in this country right now, and that's a big deal. Um, the one down at the, um, the Dominions project in Virginia, they've got monopiles showing up. Um, it's fully permitted, and so things are moving forward. And the states, particularly the New England and states in New York, have really shown uh, that they're they're in it. You know they're they're willing to see out this storm. And they're trying to find solutions. So there is at this point, if if that kind of political commitment from the states remains, you can. It, you I think it's fair to assume that some of these projects will get built. You have to imagine at a certain point, if more projects get built, that some of the supply chain is going to come to the United States out of pure necessity, because there just simply aren't enough of these facilities worldwide to support the level of growth that we're seeing in Europe, that we're seeing in Asia, and that has been projected for the United States. Um, having said all that, I think the widespread uh, conventional wisdom at this moment in time is that we're definitely not meeting the 30 gigawatt target by 2030. Um, whether we reach that, you know, in the next five to ten years, I think, or, or or better that in the in the following decade, I think is really that's the real question. Yeah, yeah. So another thing to watch closely. Um, well, Ben Sterl from E&E News has been a fascinating conversation. It's very timely, uh, and our, our shows aren't always sort of up to the minute on what's happening in the, the energy news, but I think this is a great chance to do just that. So before we close it out, um, I'd love to ask you to recommend something that's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack, something that you think is great. Could be something you read or you watched or you heard or, you know, whatever kind of content you're into these days. Oh my gosh, Daniel. I The question that I dread, because it leads me to having to admit to this, which is outside of what I'm doing for work, I have been re I've been reading fiction because I just can't stand the real world at the oh, moment. Yeah. I feel <laughs> so I've been working my way through the Dune series, which is a comment on uh, resource management at some yeah. level. So yeah. um, that is what I have been reading lately. That sounds great. Um, have you seen the films? Do you like the films? So the f I saw the first film and. I loved it and I thought it was amazing and it prompted me because I remember seeing the movie was it in the 80s or the 90s and I really did not like it and so for that reason I never read the books and um, 
when HBO put out the first movie a couple years ago now, I think it was, I was like, wow, this is one of those classics that I never read. And so then I got all into it. And uh, um, I'm nearly done with, I think I'm on like the sixth book now. Uh, so it's been a journey. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Ben Starr, once again, thank you so much for coming on to Resources Radio. And thank you so much for all your reporting that you do. I know I read it whenever it's out, whenever it's available. And um, so we really appreciate you coming in the show and sharing your expertise with our listeners. Thanks for having me, Daniel. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.